This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with Scott Harrison. He was a club promoter for a decade in Manhattan, had a crisis of being. He went to Africa and was horrified by what he saw. So he founded Charity Water, a huge charity with the goal of providing clean water to the entire world. We'll be talking about how he's able to funnel 100% of donations to those who need it most, how he's able to get celebrities and tech moguls to travel with him and give up their birthdays for charity, and how he reinvented himself at age 30 to do something that actually matters and how you can do the same. Enjoy this one with Scott Harrison, and welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all of the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. Of course, I want to encourage you to join us in our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. It's all about improving your social capital and inspiring more people to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It will make you a better networker and connector. So check it out. Text charmed to 33444 or go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Now, Scott Harrison. Shame on Shaquille Khan, who I know, by the way, for going on this trip and, you know, being a nice, generous guy. Screw all these Silicon Valley guys. They wear hooded sweatshirts. <laughs> I know. You know, Shaq has actually been with me five times now. Talk about someone that, uh, that actually lives it. I joke that his first time there, he was wearing Prada shoes and a Rolex. And now he has, you know, these kind of, you know, hiking shoes, like the Merrill hiking shoes and no watch. <laughs> In many ways, that really does parallel the whole Silicon Valley ideal. In fact, you see this wealth that's generated so quickly with all of these young people. And it kind of goes like this, and feel free to jump in where I'm wrong. It, it seems like the lives of the donors actually match yours. And we'll tell that story in a bit where it's, oh my gosh, all this wealth and success, everything is awesome, let me buy some Prada shoes, I'm killing it. And then it's like, oh, this doesn't mean squat and nobody gives a rat's ass about my stupid Prada shoes. And they're either lost, and that time frame can be a few hours, or it can Decades. be a few years, or a decade, like it seemed to be with you, no offense, and we'll get into that. And then they find purpose, like you did. And it seems like your donors are actually doing largely the same. It's just that instead of starting their own charity, they're getting on board with yours because you know what the heck you're doing, and it's actually better that way. And I see this a lot with my own friends. I'm in Silicon Valley, and I know these guys that'll cash out of Facebook or Twitter, and they're like, I'm running meditation retreats. And I'm like, oh, God, please don't call me until you kick your head out of your beehole because you're so annoying right now because they're rich and they're totally lost. And I know it's Crimea River, poor millionaire, but it still seems like what a lot of people are going through with your charity and they're going and finding this purpose and it's actually just as important for them as it was for you. Yeah, I don't have a lot to disagree with. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, let's back up a little bit because right now people are going, okay, what the hell are you guys talking about? Can you tell us who you are and what you do in one sentence? Sure, yeah, I'm Scott Harrison, working in an organization called Charity Water and we are trying to bring clean drinking water to everybody on earth. 
And that's a big mission. And I want to not just profile the charity and not just profile you, but I would love to get the, the backstory here. I mean, were you always geared towards charity? Is this a lifelong passion of yours? Yeah, no. <laughs> I think my life is kind of three three chapters. I had a really unusual childhood. I was born in Philadelphia, middle-class family. Dad was a businessman. Mom was a writer. And then uh, when I was young, about four, uh, my mom got really ill. There was a terrible carbon monoxide leak in our house. The gas company, PSE&G, had actually installed a faulty furnace with cracks in it. And she uh, she was breathing in this carbon monoxide over time, and it almost killed her. Um, it actually didn't kill her, thank God, but her yeah. immune system was irreparably destroyed. So as a four-year-old, I watched my mom go from super mom, you know, super wife, to uh, just completely debilitated. And uh, what it did to her body, she just became allergic to basically anything normal, anything chemical, um, from car fumes to soap to perfume to, you know, the ink in books would make her sick. Oh, my goodness. And she was connected to oxygen. She would wear charcoal masks. If I wanted to see my mom for a period of years, I would have to go outside, stand 50 feet away from her and make sure that the wind was was blowing off of her to me and not vice versa. So it was a bizarre childhood, you know, in a caregiver role, only child, and a family of faith. My parents were, were Christians. They were non-denominational Christians, and they, um, they really lived it. They decided not to sue the gas company because they didn't want to become bitter. And they, you know, raised me with great values, with high morals. And, you know, my dad is an amazing guy. He stuck by my mom. I mean, there was a decade where they weren't even sleeping in the same room. She slept in this tile bathroom covered in tin foil on an army cot that had been washed 30 times in baking soda. I mean, it was bizarre. Do you feel bitter about your parents not suing? Do you feel like there's an injustice there that's still uncorrected? I, I don't. I don't. You know, my my dad always had health care. And, you know, yeah, could they have, you know, five or $10 million sitting in the bank? Maybe. You know, my parents would have just given that money away. They live very modestly. They give away more than, you know, more than their interest on retirement. So I think I had great role models. Um, yeah, sure, as a kid, I was always complaining that, you know, why couldn't my mom be like the other moms and why couldn't I have friends over from school? And But I really admired my parents and especially my father um, who did it well. I mean, the easy thing to do was to leave, to say, hey, this is all in, in your head and I'm out of here, you know, with my secretary. And he really stuck by my mom. So at 18 and yeah, I wish this wasn't true, but my life became one of those cliches, you know, the good church kid who was up on the altar, you know, playing in the band goes completely rogue and prodigal. And I think it was just a, a sense of, I have played by the rules. I have taken care of mom. I've been the good kid. Uh, none of that's any fun. And I want to smoke and I want to drink and I want to have sex and I want to gamble. And, you know, now it's time for me. Now it's time to look out for number one. Your parents must have gone apeshit when you did that. Dude, they did. They did. I mean, their only child that they had, you know, raised really well, grows his hair down to his shoulders, uh, moves to New York City, joins a, you know, rock, slightly punk band, and just, you know, completely goes off the reservation. So, you know, my band breaks up. I'm 19. I'm living in the city. I decide to become a nightclub promoter. Uh, because if you're going to rebel in style, then what better way to do it than to actually get paid to drink? I mean, this job exists here in New York City where you can get paid lots of money just to drink for a living, basically, and, and get other people drunk. So I became pretty good at this. You know, my, my ambition was to be, you know, the king of New York. And I probably got to 
you know, my business partner, I probably got to the top eight or 10 promoters running, uh, you know, the trendy nightlife scene in New York. Which is like probably the most competitive scene to be doing that in, in the United States, possibly the world. It is. And it's a world of $500 bottles of Cristal. And, you know, we would take over a restaurant and we would ring $50,000 of booze in a matter of hours. And then you know, leave it back as a restaurant doing breakfast the next day. So it was, yeah, it was a fast life of, of rappers and movie stars and models. And you know, your life looks great on the outside. You're jumping into town cars to go to dinner at 10 and whatever the new trendy restaurant is, you're going to the club at 12 and then you're going to after hours at five. Um, where it's a lot less pretty is when it's noon and, you know, you're off your face uh, headed home while other people are on their lunch break. <laughs> Normal, respectable people, right. you know, are having healthy lunch at like au bon pan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've been up for a day uh, doing all the, the wrong things. So that has to wear on you because I've done a few days like that. Certainly not a lifestyle of that regularly. And I know how awful I feel. I just feel like a waste of human flesh after one day of doing that. So doing it professionally, literally, as your job, does it get easier or do you just have such psychic damage because of that? Well, I think it's even worse because, you know, what you just described, you would go out as one of our customers. We sold that. I mean, we peddled it. That was our lifestyle. The more people we got wasted every night, the more fun people had at our parties, the more money we'd make. So, you know, not only were we almost you know, living destructive lifestyles ourselves in so many cases, but we were really, you know, inviting other people into that. So, you know, if you took a snapshot of my life 10 years later, um, I have smoked two packs of Marlboro Reds a day, sometimes three Ugh. for 10 years. So I have a coughing problem. I had a drinking problem. I had a cocaine problem. I had a gambling problem. I had a pornography problem. I had a strip club problem. Pretty much anything short of heroin. Wow. Uh, but yet it looks glamorous. Booze pimp problems. We actually picked these things up out of boredom. You know, it wasn't, uh, it was addiction as much as just having to have the same banal conversations night overnight, you know, shouting over a DJ and the song that I've heard 40 times, you know, over the last week uh, just gets a little tiring. I'm sure. So what shakes you out of something like that? Because there are people listening to this right now that are going, that sounds awesome. Or they're doing it right now and they're going, this is awful, but I don't know what to do. You know, my turning point was this decadent, opulent kind of trip to South America, went to a place called Punta de Esta with all the beautiful people. And it was this, this great house we'd rented and we had servants and horses and magnums of Dom Perignon. It was over New Year's Eve. And there was this party that lasted longer than I wanted it to. And I remember it was New Year's Day and it was noon and there were still people dancing you know, kind of off their face at the pool. And I just wanted everybody gone. I wanted the music to stop. And there was this realization over this trip that there would never be enough. There'd never be enough girls. There'd never be enough money. There'd never be enough status, never be enough parties that I was chasing this insatiable desire. And as I looked around at so many of these people, I realized, you know, they weren't really happy. You know, so many of our clients were 50-year-old guys who had torched their families. You know, they're dating girls younger than their daughters. And, of course, their daughters don't talk to them. And their ex-wives don't talk to them. And it was destructive. And if I continued down this path, you know, my tombstone was going to read, you know, here lies a drunk who got a million people drunk. <laughs> or maybe right. 10 million people drunk. So it was tough, uh, you know, partying every night. But now, you know, the luster had been gone and I, I wanted to find a way out. And it took me about six months. And I'm a pretty radical guy, but 
you know, one day I rented a, a cobalt blue Ford Mustang from uh, from Newark Airport. I think it was a, a month rental or maybe an unlimited rental. And I grabbed a Bible and I grabbed a bottle of Dewar's and I just started heading north. Can I, can I just, that's, it's funny. You're like, I grabbed my Bible and my scotch. I think it's scotch. So it's like, kind of, you're like, I'm done with all this worldly stuff. Wait a second. Where's the scotch? Yeah. And, and the Marlboro Reds because yeah. I was still smoking two packs. So yeah. yeah, it wasn't like a clean, it wasn't that clean of a break at that point. And, and I wound up eventually in Maine and you know, I'll never forget this from, I, I basically made a deal that I would give one of the 10 years I pissed away selfishly and I I would try and serve the poor and just see where that took me. Um, uh, You know, a penance or a tithe, I guess you could say. So from this internet cafe on Moosehead Lake in Maine, I remember it was dial-up internet, those big chunky kind of gray Dells, probably still had disk drives in them. And uh, I start applying to the famous humanitarian organizations of the world to become a volunteer. And I never go back to New York. I wind up selling my possessions. I went to a friend's house in the south of France in the Pyrenees, not like a, a bling house or anything, just a little cottage <laughs> to wait for these applications to, you know, wait for all of my options, Jordan, you know, because yeah. all of these humanitarian organizations were going to be dying to have me, right? Of course. They can't wait to get their hands on somebody who smokes, drinks, does drugs, and helps other people do the same thing. I mean, they're just reaching out for people like you, I'm sure. You know, what made it even worse is I remember on these applications, some of them would ask these moral questions, and I was honest. I was compelled to be honest. So I would write, you know, yes, I smoke and I drink, but but I, my heart has changed that I really want to, you know, follow God and serve the poor. And Okay, so as, as you can imagine, every organization denies me, except one. And one organization, while I was in France, called me up and said if I was willing to pay them $500 a month, and if I was willing to go to the poorest country in the world, which was Liberia at the time, I could volunteer for their organization. So I said, okay. And I gave them my credit card details. And a few weeks later, I was uh, joining this medical humanitarian mission to West Africa. So essentially, they needed money so bad, they were willing to put up with pretty much anything. Now, in some ways, I was uniquely qualified to do the job. They just had to take a chance on my character. So I volunteered to be their photojournalist. So huge medical operation, about 350 people, uh, doctors, surgeons, nurses operating on a giant hospital ship. And they needed someone to document all of the work that they did. So for this, I was kind of uniquely qualified because I was a promoter. And I had 15,000 people on my email list, my club list. So I had a built-in audience of people you know, that were buying $500 bottles of champagne or vodka Yeah, that could be generous, right? That could be giving to this humanitarian org. And I had actually gotten a, an NYU degree in journalism, so I dusted that off. I'm sure that list was uniquely positioned to be a very targeted audience. Hey, we know you love getting hammered on weekdays, but guess what? You can donate your money to people that you never meet. I mean, Jordan, that's exactly it. So I, so I joined this mission. I should say that there's this moment before. So it was, imagine a 522-foot white hospital ship, a converted old cruise liner, 50 years old, that had been gutted and turned into a state-of-the-art 42-bed hospital for people who had no access to medical care that would sail up and down the African coast. So this becomes my new home. The day before I get on the ship to literally sail to the mission in Africa, I got hammered. I think I, you know, had a good six to ten beers, smoked three packs of cigarettes, and then that was it. I really quit everything that night. 
I drink a little bit uh, wine and beer now, but I never had another <laughs> cigarette. I never gambled again. I never looked at porn again. I never uh, touched Coke or, or any of that stuff again. And I felt like there would need to be this all in, you know, if I was going to step into the next chapter of my life, if I was going to be able to live out a new story, I would have to leave everything behind. Um, and it was kind of, you know, this nice picture of literally sailing away from all that stuff that had really bogged me down and corrupted me for, for 10 years. So we sail into Africa and my third day on the mission, I remember it's 5.30 in the morning. The government has given us this huge football stadium, soccer stadium, to, to see patients, to screen our patients. And, you know, I'm with these eager doctors. 41 countries are represented. Uh, the doctors have given up their vacation time to operate for free on the port. So it's wow. a pretty inspiring place to be. Yeah. You know, these, these doctors are coming from Germany, from England, from America. You know, they could be in Mystique. They could be in the Bahamas. And they've decided to, you know, take their couple weeks off and continue plying their craft, but on people who can't afford help. So my third day there, you know, it's 530 in the morning. We roll up to the football stadium. And I know that we have about 1,500 surgery slots to fill over a two-day patient screening. And turn the corner and I see the swarm of people. There are over 5,000 people that had come. If you have 1,500 surgery slots and 5,000 plus people are there, forgive me for stating the obvious, you're going to have to turn people away. Yeah, so I just wept. I, just, I literally broke when that dawned on me, realizing these people had come sick and with hope, and they would be, they'd be turned away. Their hopes would be dashed. And, and some of them had actually walked for more than a month. They'd walked from neighboring countries hearing that there were doctors that might be able to treat their conditions. So it was, it was incredibly difficult. And we saw people with leprosy. We saw people with massive facial tumors the size of volleyballs. Oh, my goodness. We saw people with flesh-eating disease, with cleft lips, with cleft faces, with cleft palates. So not only are you seeing all of these absolute medical horrors for the first time in real life, for in your whole life, but you have to tell the vast majority that you can do nothing for them and thanks for trying and see you later. So it's a good thing I was an optimist uh, because I was really able to, uh, to survive. You had to focus on the people that we were helping. And that was amazing. So, you know, think about 1,500 people getting help. And it was dramatic, Jordan. It's blind people that had lost their eyesight due to massive cataracts 10 years earlier, uh, removal of those cataracts, and then being there at the moment they see and scream and dance and clap and hug their family members and hug the nurses and hug me uh, with the camera in my hand. Seeing people who were about to die with these huge tumors that were suffocating to death, returned home with health. So it was, it was amazing. So all the while, I'm blasting my 15,000 people back in New York with these stories and pictures and videos. And as you can imagine, my list gets a little smaller. <laughs> yeah, unsubscribe. <laughs> Some people are like, take me off of this list. I signed up for the Prada party, you know, not the tumor party or the flesh-eating disease party. Oh, my God. I remember this one reply, this woman said, uh, and I knew her as just a customer. She said, I'm sitting here at my desk at Chanel and tears are streaming down my face. I need to do something about this. I need to help. So I realized the power of story of images to move people to compassion and to generosity as well. And, and people began giving money to this organization. They began volunteering. So tell us, speaking of story, tell us the story of Alfred. I read about this in one of your interviews or perhaps it was in your talk. It was one of the things that you'd mentioned that actually moved you because it personalized the situation for you in a way that hadn't been done before. 
Yeah, so Alfred was this 14-year-old kid with a volleyball-sized tumor, almost bloody red fleshy tumor. It was called an amelioblastoma, completely benign, but it had grown over four years and would have suffocated him to death in months. He was really my first friend. I mean, I, I remember seeing him and just weeping and running into the corner, uh, unable to kind of process this kind of human suffering to a child, this kind of deformity. And, you know, one of the doctors came over and kind of kicked me in the butt and said, you know, look, dude, you signed up for a year. You're on day three. <laughs> and I heard you're from New York. We thought you're tougher than that. Yeah, like like a boxer in your corner. And it's like, you're supposed to get punched in the face. You know, that's part of the deal, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you not see the memo? Like these pictures are on our website, dude. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, no, wasn't on the website. You're the only people that would take me. And I found you in a huge list of other places that rejected me. <laughs> There was just something about seeing it in person that was so shocking and so devastating. Anyway, he ended that diatribe by saying, this is why we're here and we're going to be able to help Alfred and I'll let you watch me operate on him in a couple of days. So Alfred kind of became my first friend and I did scrub up for the surgery a couple of days later. Um, and then I watched him heal on the ward and spent a lot of time hanging out with him. And then I asked whether I could take him home. So I wound up driving him a couple hours out of the city back into the village and watching this incredible celebration in his village. You know, a child written off for lost, written off for dead, returned home with a new face a new lease on life. And I've stayed in touch with Alfred over, so this is 10 years ago now. It's interesting. We put him in school. He didn't do great in school, but then uh, he wanted to be a plumber. So we, we helped him get his apprenticeship as a plumber, which he's been for the last five years. And last year, my wife and I helped him get a, uh, a motorcycle. And I just got a picture of him recently, you know, on his motorcycle heading out on his uh, plumbing rounds. Uh, so that was my first friend. It was kind of such a dramatic before and after that had these doctors gone on vacation with their families, you know, gone down the, the water slide in Atlantis with their kids and not come here, Alfred would have died. And Alfred had, you know, his entire life changed because people cared and because they, they used their talents, they used their gifts in the service of others. And, and it was incredibly inspiring to me. And then to see that writ large uh, times 1,499 other people just over the period of months. Now, that's obviously incredible and also shows the power that people can have over the situation by making simple decisions or not so simple decisions to take part in charity water or the outings. I think there are other stories here that don't end up as well as Alfred. And one of them that really struck me was the story you had about this woman who carried this giant clay pot eight hours to get water and just was in terrible shape because of it. Eight hours, one day she slipped and fell and it broke and she ended up actually hanging herself as a result. Looking at things like that, it's not just the cliche of, whoa, we take our water for granted. I mean, it really powerfully hits home and it affects people in very material ways. And in, in fact, uh, Jason, you said the story of the little girl, it cost you a box of Kleenex. Can you chime in on that? Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Uh, when I was watching the video uh, from your last talk, I literally went through a box of Kleenex uh, crying because the story of the little girl. I'm, I'm actually getting teary now <laughs> um, who wanted to hit her goal for her birthday and didn't make it. And next year, she's just like, I'm going to try harder next year. And then she died in a car accident. And you guys raised, you know, over a million dollars and did like so much great work. And it was just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something powerful about a nine year old who, you know, looks at 
pictures of kids drinking dirty water across the world. And unlike so many people, you know, that shrug it off or throw their hands up, you know, in helplessness and say, ah, the world is such a bad place. What can we do? You know, says, hey, I can maybe raise $200 to help a couple people by giving up my birthday gifts and giving up my birthday party. And, you know, Rachel Beckwith was this extraordinary little nine-year-old girl in, in Seattle. And as you mentioned, a couple of weeks after her, her birthday, she was killed in a, in a car crash. And I think her story, that idealism, that purity unsettled everyone that heard about it. And 60,000 people around the world gave $9 or more to her campaign. And she wound up raising $1.2 million. People in Africa heard about her and started giving. People in India, people in Thailand. Her vision for a better world spread around the world. And you know, I had the honor of taking her mother and her grandparents to see the wells in Ethiopia that she built on the one-year anniversary of her death. And it was one of the most moving experiences since starting Charity Water, going around with this family who was meeting the thousands and thousands. She helped 37,000 people get clean water. Her vision was to help 15. And watching her family go village to village, uh, I remember uh, some of the Ethiopian mothers would throw themselves prostrate at Rachel's mother's feet, uh, saying, we too have lost children, but your daughter's death has brought us life. And it was incredibly powerful. It's been a real honor to be a steward of, of some of those stories. You know, uh, Jordan, the one you mentioned about the 13-year-old girl, you know, I'd heard that in Ethiopia. I've been to Ethiopia 26 times over the past few years uh, since starting the org. And yeah, somebody walked up to me at a hotel and said, yeah, this 13-year-old girl was walking eight hours every day for water. She slips and falls one day. And instead of going and getting water, she just slings herself from a tree. And I just didn't believe it. And, you know, it was one of those stories that just, it stuck with me. And I needed to go and see if it was true. And I wound up hiking nine hours uh, over the mountains into her village and visiting her grave and, and visiting her mom, uh, visiting her friend that walked with her that day and seeing the tree and photographing the tree. And I think, you know, that story for me keeps me going. Like right now, there are people walking eight hours every day for dirty water simply because of where they're born. I was born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia. You know, I've never had dirty water in my entire life. My son, you know, is, is growing up in a one-bedroom in downtown Manhattan. He's never going to drink dirty water simply because of the privilege he was born into. So if we can use that privilege that we didn't do anything to deserve to help others out of extreme poverty, I think it's a real blessing you know, it shouldn't be a burden. I think it's an amazing thing that we get to do every day and to invite people into that. Jason's taking care of himself right now. He literally, no, I had to go blow my nose. I'm sorry. I did that story. Just, it, it gets me every time. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? 
interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. All right, back to Scott Harrison. The media that you're able to create from this is very powerful. And I want to talk about that because there are so many charities that ask for money and donations, but I've only seen one other person do, Adam Brown, who's also been on The Art of Charm and is a friend of mine. I've never seen anybody else other than you two do this so well. You have created a brand. And not just, hey, donate to the Red Cross, we give people blood when they need it, but a very powerful brand that actually works. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because you've leveraged these promoter skills, essentially, to bring the cool kids together. And I put that in air quotes because cool nerds in Silicon Valley. You've brought everybody together for good instead of overpriced champagne. And that's actually really hard to do. I think we're storytellers. You know, we see stories everywhere and, and we try to use those stories to speak to our values and the values that we want to see more of in the world. Rachel's story, right? It, it speaks to, to great compassion, to empathy, uh, the opposite of apathy, uh, to action. And there's a purity there. And I think, you know, so many of the stories that we try to tell, you know, you mentioned the branding thing. So I married my creative director. The first person I hired was uh, to help me go and build out these water programs. And the second person was to help me build a brand. And I'd come across this quote in the New York Times by Nick Kristoff, who said that people peddle toothpaste with far more sophistication than all of the world's life-saving causes. 
And I thought, that is so broken, you know? Junk food companies can spend hundreds of millions of dollars marketing crap to people. And the most redemptive, important, life-saving causes in the world have bad websites and you know, they don't have a brand that is worthy of their work. And where was the Apple of charities? Where was the Nike? Where was the Virgin? You know, where was the charity that, that inspired people and dazzled them with imagination and transparency and creativity and integrity and all that stuff? So I think we've been really intentional about excellence in the way things look, simplicity in story, and then just constantly constantly telling these stories. Uh, some are happy, some are sad, some are hopeful, some speak to courage, you know, but they're all true. They're all very real. That's exactly what I was going to say. They're all very real. And that's the important part. And I, look, there's going to be people who actually, I've read plenty of criticism about you in preparation for this program. The feeling I got the subtext, this wasn't directly spoken, was that there's something almost considered dirty in the charity world about having a solid and effective brand because that somehow cheapens the work, which I obviously, from an outside perspective, do not agree with at all. I think that's ridiculous. If something's going to make you more effective at helping other people, then do it if it's not fraudulent. There's almost this sort of, well, well we run a charity and we don't have to market it. We can't market it. It's a poverty mentality. It's an actual poverty mentality that spreads to, you know, the work. And I mean, it just seems crazy to me, you know, that a, a shoe company is allowed to have a beautiful brand, but a company feeding the hungry or giving clean water to people in need, you know, we want their materials to look bad. We want their website to look bad. It's just, I think it's just stupid. It doesn't really make sense. And I kind of understand why they think that way. Like, well, look, we're focused on doing good here, but it's kind of like saying, hey, look, I want to help as many people as possible, but geez, I don't want to have to actually convince other people to do it. They should just know. But when you phrase it like that, that's ridiculous. However, that's exactly what most charities are doing. If you want to donate to us, we're going to make it really freaking hard. We're not going to follow common sort of e-commerce rules to make it easy because that will make us look like a business and yucky business is gross and shouldn't be a thing that we appear as, which is completely back ass words and ineffective. You know, and I, I think one of the other things we've been criticized for is that we treat our donors with too much care. You know, so many organizations look at their donors as just a means to an end. You know, if we didn't need the donors and we could just go do our good work in the field, you know, then that would be better. But we need our donors. We love our donors. We love celebrating them. We want to call forth greater compassion and greater generosity and greater empathy. We've been able to raise almost $200 million over the last nine years thanks to a million people. I can't write a $200 million check. I live in a one-bedroom apartment. I didn't sell $200 million worth of booze over 10 years or, or anything even close to that. We really celebrate our donors. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, you should be focusing entirely on the beneficiaries. And uh, we just don't see it that way. You know, an early charity water donor who gave a million bucks to us, it was our first big transformative gift about eight years ago. And it changed the organization at that time. And, you know, as far as I know, it's this for donor's first gift to charity of any sort of meaningful size. And he got really involved with us and, you know, has been coming to the field now with his family. I think they've been to five or six countries with us. And now he's raising $10 million for other charities through a members club. And, you know, this extraordinary individual will probably raise, raise and give hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to impact a bunch of causes. Those are the stories that we want to tell. You know, we think that's inspiring. I mean, I saw yesterday Zuckerberg pledged 99% of his 
Facebook shares, $45 billion or so to, to charities and for good. And I saw our social media team pin that on Charity Waters Facebook. You know, we have no relationship with them, but I think, uh, you know, I'm not cynical about that. I'm not cynical about Bill Gates. I think we need more money to move from, you know, stagnant bank accounts where it's helping nobody, uh, where the surplus is just sitting there earning en- interest, you know, into villages around the world that have great need, uh, into writing some of the wrongs of the world. And that it's our opportunity to invite people into that, not to guilt or shame them into it, but to call it forth as this great, exciting opportunity to give, you know, invite people that believe that the world might actually be getting better and want to contribute to that. What's up with the, uh, by the way, the paying back of credit card fees? That seems so random to me. What's the, what's the idea behind that? Well, maybe people don't know about Charity Water's business model. W- one step we missed, you know, I spent two years, almost two years with Mercy Ships working uh, with their doctors documenting that. But as I went into the rural villages, I saw people drinking dirty water for the first time. So, I, <laughs> you know, I learned that half of the people of Liberia didn't have clean water to drink. So freaking no wonder thousands of people were turning up to see our doctors with stuff growing on their faces, with trachoma, with flesh-eating disease. You know, they didn't have the most basic need for life and health met. So that's how I went to water. The Mercy Ships volunteer experience was transformative, but it put me on to the question behind the question for so much of the sickness. So rather than, you know, wanting to fund more ships or more doctors or maybe be able to help 2,000 people standing outside a stadium, I wanted to make sure that everybody in the country had clean water and maybe there'd be 10 people standing outside a stadium, you know, 50 people standing outside of a stadium. So that's how I, I went onto water. But coming back after the two years of Mercy Ships, I was 30, you know, so many of my friends were expecting me, I think, to go back into nightclubs. I mean, I remember a couple of people saying, bro, you did that just to get girls, right? You know, turn yourself into like a humanitarian and send in all those gnarly emails. <laughs> you know, where's the party? And I'm like, where's the party? I mean, I remember running around, some of the only people I knew then were nightlife. And I was showing these pictures of tumors and people drinking dirty water to DJs in their DJ booths at two in the morning. And I remember, you know, being shooed out and saying, dude, you're killing our buzz. I'll give you money. We'll help. But please not now. Just stop sending me tumor face pictures. Yeah, exactly. But I was so passionate about it. You know, there was a responsibility to do something about what I'd seen. You know, not not as much makeup for the past. I mean, I really wasn't trying to to pay penance as much. I was just I was on a new path and wanted to promote greater good. I wanted to promote clean water for people. So as I was talking to my friends, I realized they were really jaded when it came to charities. And the most common complaint had to do with money. And people said, charities are black holes. You know, I give my money to those big charities. I don't know how much actually reaches the people. You know, how much is going to get that? I bet you know, 10 cents on the dollar is actually going to reach people. And in some cases, that's true. So many of them were just using that as an excuse to not give. So I wanted to create a business model where people could never, ever, ever use that excuse to why they wouldn't give, to why they wouldn't be able to to help others. So uh, we opened up two bank accounts and I had no idea how we would pull this off at the time, but I remember putting a hundred bucks in each and saying, we're going to use every single penny that the public ever gives us, and we're only going to use it to directly fund water project costs. We are not going to take any overhead out. We're not going to use it to pay our people or our office or our flights or our toner or paper clips or phone bills. Every single penny is going to go to direct water project costs. Somehow, I'd have to figure out how to make overhead cool and get a very small group of people excited about funding the overhead, but they would be two separate bank accounts. And I said, 
you know, we are going to protect the integrity. We're going to be so crazy about the integrity of this 100% that we'll pay back credit card fees. So when we say 100%, it doesn't mean 98%. Because think about it. If you pulled out your American Express and you sponsored a $10,000 water project on our website, I actually would only get 9700 So we pay back the $300 and we send the $10,000 you intended to give straight to the field. Because 100% for us means 100%. So it really had to do with, uh, with integrity. So that's the 100% model, and, th- and that's how that works. Some people might say that that's a little misleading because obviously there are administrative costs, and these costs have to be funded somehow. Absolutely. We, we have them. You know, I think we ran at 83% program, 17% uh, you know, admin and fundraising, so we have a great ratio. But we're just saying you should know exactly what you get. You know, if you wanted to fund the overhead costs, then 100% of your money would go into that bank account. That's the business model. No, we're not saying that it doesn't cost nothing to run the organization. We have 75 employees here in New York. Uh, we provide them with great health care and dental and vision, and, and they're able to provide for their families. Their salaries are paid by 107 very generous individuals who give to the overhead. So all of the money that those guys and girls are giving goes to pay for the overhead. And then a million donors are given a pure experience. So there is an element of choice. If you said to me after this, man, I really want to, you know, help fund your next employer. I want to pay for your copier or your toners, you know, your, your rent to the office. There's a way to do that. We just keep those bank accounts separate and we audit them separately. That's good. So people know that when they're donating to drill a well, that their money is drilling a well, whereas other donors who are maybe a little bit more conscious of what goes into it can say, look, I'm going to give you a million bucks and you can use it to then run your ship and solicit donations from a wider audience. And that makes perfect sense because you do hear these horror stories and I guarantee you people listening right now are like, well, wait a minute. You know, he probably lives lavishly or because you hear these horror stories of charities where the freaking CEO is flying around in a private jet and it's just disgusting. All right, Jordan. So I, I did 96 flights last year. Maybe it was the year before. I think I did 65 last year. That sounds absolutely miserable. We've raised almost $200 million, and we have never bought a business class ticket. In fact, actually, I was late to a speaking engagement once, and there was only a business class ticket left, and I bought it myself because it's a value of the organization that we're really good stewards of our donor dollars. You know, my wife and I live in a one-bedroom apartment. We have our kid, we have a beautiful boy who is in the closet at the moment. So we, we will probably get priced out for the suburbs. But, you know, we give as well to our own organization. You know, we, we I believe that if I'm going to ask you for money, if I'm going to ask people uh, to be generous, we have to be generous as well. So, you know, we're given over 20% of our income, you know, on two nonprofit salaries, you know, to our own work and to others because that's important to us. I literally just figured out that you didn't put your baby in a closet. No, no, we really do have a closet. This is New York living, bro. Come oh my on. goodness. Battery, I, battery, okay, you did. Living. All right, I was just checking because I'm like, does he saying, is he saying he lives in a closet because it's a small place or did he literally put his kid in the closet? Now, my wife has done beautiful wallpaper and there's a crib and bookshelves and a little sound machine and a chair, you know, so it's like a walk-in closet, but it is a closet. <laughs> Who needs a sound machine when you've got all those New York sound effects outside that we're hearing right now? The sirens and the uh, the horns. Yeah, so that's what kids are raised on these days. Exactly. 
How often do you feel like the lives of your donors match yours? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, wealth and success then followed quickly by emptiness, followed by purpose. I mean, do you feel like your path uniquely positions you to relate to the Silicon Valley crowd and and the donors that you do solicit? I think, you know, my personal story might be less of the connection to the Silicon Valley crowd. I think it's the values that the organization runs by. I mean, we care about transparency. We care about innovation. We're trying to use the latest technology for good, whether that's putting sensors on our wells so we know that they're actually working for years to come. You know, we have drilling rigs out there that have Twitter accounts. So you can actually see, they tweet their locations. You can actually see where they are. I mean, I feel like so many of the uh, the tech entrepreneurs are much more steady. You know, they graduated Stanford and, you know, started their tech company. They didn't go party for 10 years. Yeah. So I'm not sure it's the prodigal story that, you know, that speaks to them. But I okay. think the, the values of the org, you know, we feel like a tech startup. Someone walked in our office uh, recently. We just moved to Tribeca in New York City. And we have an incredibly generous landlord that came with us to to Ethiopia and 22 different vendors donated amazing stuff for our office. I mean, Samsung gave us $50,000 of TVs that are, you know, on screens measuring KPIs and how our websites are doing and how our social, all all that stuff. Someone walked in there the other day and said, your offices are nicer than Facebook. And I think that's it. It feels like a tech company. Everything's glass. um, And we scrapped to do it. I mean, we got light fixtures donated because we asked you know, we could get carpets and chairs and couches donated because we asked. What does giving do for the donor? Because it seems, hearing testimonials or anecdotes from people who have done these trips with you, it seems almost like self-actualization through service. That's a really good question, Jordan. I think it helps positionally move you from a default of maybe selfishness where, you know, we go through our lives thinking about our needs or our family's needs I think it's too easy for a lot of us to complain, you know, about the weather not being right or business not going great. And I think it just takes people out of their element, you know, to go from living in a, you know, $30 million house to walking in villages with no electricity, you know, where people are hungry, where they don't have clean water. I think it really makes makes you reflect on your values, reflect on, you know, what are you doing with your time and your talent and your money to right some of the wrongs in the world? And that you really can. It almost puts it in the world of this minute possibility, right? I mean, I was just in Ethiopia two weeks ago where we had we shot a, an amazing story in virtual reality this year uh, that documented the six days where a 13-year-old girl in uh, rural northern Ethiopia gets clean water. And you're there with her on the first day at the nasty water source. You're watching her drink with cattle, which is just unthinkable. That you're there the next day in her house. Uh, you're there with her in school. You're then there as the drilling rigs roll in. You're there in the middle of the drilling. You see them hit water and the community dance and clap and, and go nuts. And then you watch Salam drink clean water on the sixth day for the first time in her life. And, you know, it's incredibly powerful. And, and that was $10,000, by the way. I mean, I know a lot of things that cost $10,000. I know some people that have watches that could fund three wells. And, and I just got to go back a couple of weeks ago because we're going to screen this big VR film at our gala on Monday, uh, and actually 400 people are going to see it at the exact same time. They're going to put on headsets in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and we are going to take them to Ethiopia. And then the minute that film is done, we're going to ask them to be generous and help us make that possible for 300 more communities. But before you know, we do that, before I, I show it at the gala on Monday, I wanted to show her. It just felt like the right thing to do. 
So I flew to Ethiopia for 36 hours, hiked all the way up to the north, uh, drove out to her village, and I showed her her film. And it was amazing. She took down the headset. First thing she said was Konjo, which in Tigrinya, her language means beautiful. And then we showed her dad, and we showed her brother, and we showed her sister. And I watched her pumping this well, this $10,000 well. I drank from the well. We walked to this nasty swamp that was covered with algae. You could see worms and like tadpoles in it. And there was nobody at the swamp. The entire community is getting clean water. And she told me that she was going to school three days a week before. Now she's able to go to school five days a week. And she was able to take about 10 gallons of water home, dirty water. And now she's able to take 20 gallons because the well is closer and she doesn't have to wait. And that writ large, and we've been able to, thanks to, like I said, a million donors, we've been able to do that in about 17,000 villages now. But you know, for me, it just brings it back. This is about real people. It's about 13-year-old girls. They have names. They have families. They have hopes and they have dreams. She wants to be a nurse. And, you know, there's a couple hundred people living in that village. There was an older woman that told me before the well was put in, she got a leech stuck in her throat once. It closed up her throat. And the community tried to smoke out the leech by making this poor woman inhale smoke. And then uh, they tried to give her lots of hot peppers. Uh, that didn't work. Finally, they took her to a clinic and they poisoned the leech. And she said, you know, now that we have this well, she named the well Salamwit, which means peaceful. So just these stories of meeting these people, I mean, it's, it really brings it home. I mean, it, it gets you up out of bed every morning. I'm sure. And I think, you know, th that's what those trips are like. You know, it's one thing to see me on a stage, you know, telling a bunch of stories. You know, when I lead these trips, I fade in the background. I just sit back and watch people, you know, ask their own questions, meet our local drilling partners who are out there slaving 29 out of 30 days every month to bring clean water to their own people. You know, we employ 500 people in Ethiopia. There is not a single Westerner. There's not a single expat in that organization. 500 Ethiopians helping their own people get clean water uh, through wells and springs and rainwater systems. So it's it's an amazing thing to be you know to be on a trip. I mean, I mentioned I've been to Ethiopia just alone 26 times. Every single trip changes me for the better. You know, I even saw that sometimes people have to drink diesel fuel to get things out of their. Th it's just awful. You can't make it up. Like you literally can't make it up. You know, um, it, rather than dwelling on that, because I'd, I'd love to end on an optimistic note. Tell us about the birthday challenge, because it's freaking genius. And even selfish bastards like me and Jason are like, oh, my God, where do we how do we give you money? Yeah. OK, so one of the things Charity Water has done, you know, again, we're really about finding ways that everybody can engage. You do not need to be rich to engage and to make a dent and and to help people get clean water. So, you know, we, we looked at the birthday and I actually, I kicked off Charity Water nine years ago on my 31st birthday in a nightclub. And I know it sounds so unoriginal, but maybe there was a little bit of a redemption piece going on. It was the only thing I knew how to do was to throw a party, but instead of pocketing the money to give 100% of the money to build our first few water projects. So I did my 31st birthday, 700 people came, I gave them all open bar, I charged them all 20 bucks at the door, we raised 15 grand, and we did our first few water projects. And then I sent the photos and the GPS back to all 700 people that came to the party. And you know, people were blown away that a charity would bother to tell them where $20 went. They got open bar. So on our one year anniversary, you know, I was thinking about what we would do, and I didn't want to do another party in a nightclub. You know, we'd gone beyond that. And I thought, what if, what if I just gave up my birthday? I didn't need socks or ties or iTunes gift cards. I didn't need a party 
I had everything, I had all my needs met and there were people living without water. So what if I could turn my birthday into a giving moment? What if I could, you know, rally my friends and family around my birthday, but instead of it benefiting me, it would, it would benefit others again. So I thought the idea of asking for your age in dollars would be sticky. And 32 was a messy number. And everybody I knew had $32 they could give to charity, especially if 100% of the money was going to projects. And they could actually see the photos and GPS of those projects. So I email, you know, war. I mean, I email bomb every single person I know asking for $32. And I promised to go fly to Kenya at the time and drill a well via satellite uh, if I hit my goal. Well, I wound up, you know, destroying my goal, raising $59,000 for multiple communities, drilling live on my actual birthday to, to connect people to that. And then kind of realized, well, look, anybody could do this. You know, you don't need to be a charity founder or an ex nightclub promoter to do this. Everybody has a birthday and nobody needs more crap. And whether you have tons of influence like you guys, or whether you're a nine-year-old girl in Seattle, you know, everybody could, could donate one birthday for clean water. So this movement has just spread. We've had seven-year-olds. We've had 89-year-olds. We had, I think, a 96-year-old you know, it's, it's 96 bucks when you're getting older. So the, the numbers get up there. And <laughs> yes. I'd say over $20 million has been raised simply by people just giving up their birthdays. And the average campaign will raise over $1,000 from 15 friends. And people love this, right? I mean, I, I actually wouldn't know what to get you for your birthday. And if you said, hey, give me my age in dollars as a donation, you know, I would click in, in five seconds and be done and be, be delighted to be a part of that. So, yeah, we've got a pretty well-oiled machine now where we give people the tips and tools to be successful. And even if your birthday is a year from now, you can pledge just by going to charitywater.org slash birthdays. So I guess that's the only plug we'll make, but everybody could do it. You know, if there were a thousand people listening that all gave up their birthdays and were average, that's a million dollars for clean water. So what if I wanted to give up my Christmas? You could do Christmas as well. We have a lot of people do that. They'll say, look, you know, our family just doesn't want to get into the whole rat race of, of exchanging gifts. They go to mycharitywater.org and they set up a Christmas campaign or a Hanukkah campaign just saying, you know, this year we're going to build a well for a village, you know, as a family, instead of spending, you know, $10,000 on toys that won't even be played with uh, a couple months later. Thanks so much for the work that you do. And thanks so much for coming on the program to discuss this with us. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you deliver to the Art of Charm audience? I think that's it. I'll tell you, I'll be your first donor if you guys do your birthdays. <laughs> I'll give your age plus 100 bucks. How's that? That sounds awesome. And Done uh, deal. Done yeah, deal. Jason's already on it. Thanks so much, Scott. This has been incredible. And of course, we'll link to Charity Water in the show notes. So if you're listening to this right now and you want to donate or set up your own birthday challenge, ideally, you can click on your phone and you can click on the show notes and you can go right there and, and set, get it all set up. I assume it's very easy because that's how you roll. Yep, it takes about 30 seconds. And, you know, we'll also link to uh, Rachel's story and that extraordinary video where you guys can actually see the family, you know, meeting the thousands of people that she helped. And I think everybody in the world needs to see that story. There's, there's so much there. I completely agree. If you haven't, you know, seen it yet, you have to go watch this video because it is incredible. And just before you start, I'm just telling you right now, get some Kleenex. That's all, that's <laughs> all I'm saying. Excellent. Thanks so much, Scott. See you guys. Thanks for having me on. God bless you.
Interesting. This is a an unusual episode just because of the subject matter, but I, I really think the the overlap here, where this is relevant, is personal growth and development through giving and through charity and finding purpose even later on in the game. A lot of people think they have to be born with purpose or find it, you know, somewhere in college, and that's just not the case. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Scott on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as Charity Water and other resources mentioned on the show. You can tap the album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter. Stuff that never makes the show is often posted there, and you can engage with me there. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp details for our live programs, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Subscribe in iTunes, iPhone and Android apps also available. Special thanks to both the Jasons and to Fogarty for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.